And that's what most planners want to bring into advertising is BS in the dull academic, aren't I clever version. So we ignore the fact whoever we're talking to, bus drivers, secretaries, shop assistants, forget all that. This is me being super clever with my paper that I could write and I'd be proud to take back to uni to show my lecturer. It's not a lot of use to me, that stuff, because I'm talking to real people in the real world, and that's where our market really is, rather than shoehorning in some useless academic who actually can't do anything but worry about his own ego. Two guys walking through the jungle and they hear a tiger roar, and one gets down and starts putting on running shoes, and the other one says, you're crazy if you think you can outrun a tiger. And the other one says, I don't have to outrun a tiger, I just have to outrun you. You've got upstream with a problem. I don't have to fight with a tiger. Tiger can only eat one person, he doesn't have to be me. Welcome to another episode of A Load of BS. My name is Daniel Ross. Today we're revisiting what creativity is, how to express it and find it with a legend of the advertising industry, Dave Trott. Just as John Cleese wrote brilliant sitcom and sketches, Dave created brilliant advertising over, over a career in which he founded five agencies included Gold Greenlee's Trott, Bain's Fair Sharky Trott and Chicksmith Trott. What I think you're going to love about this conversation is Dave's to-the-point, sharp-witted, no-BS worldview. David Ogilvy's greatest creation is David Ogilvy, he says, while his real heroes are Bill Burnback, John Webster and Edward de Bono. We talk about the conditions for creative outcomes, serendipity and mistakes, the nonsense of ad awards, getting upstream of problems and selling tampons to lorry drivers. I think you're going to enjoy this one. Before we dive in, please leave me a review wherever you're listening to this. I read all your comments and reply wherever I can. And if you want to join my Substack mailing list to receive all my articles, pods, and have the chance to win some great BS swag, sign up at aloadofbs.substack.com. No more puff, let's get going. Dave, welcome to A Load of BS. It's my great pleasure to have you here today. Thank you, not at all. Now, today we're going to talk about creativity and the behaviors and characteristics that enable it. Now, as an advertising man who's founded and run multiple agencies, been responsible for award-winning advertising campaigns and written, I think, five books on the subject of creativity, I think there are a few people better qualified to share the secrets and approaches to making messages land, to affecting consumer behavior and disrupting the status quo than you, Dave. Now, when I read your books, I end up summarizing your advertising credo as a mix of understanding how the human mind works, telling good stories, solving urgent problems, and just keeping things damn simple. We'll dive into some of those themes in more detail as we go, but at a high level, am I on the right lines? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's not rocket science, is it? If we're talking to people, so what are people about? We'd be pretty stupid not to know what people are about if I'm talking to them, wouldn't it? Absolutely. But let's then talk about setting the conditions for creative outcomes, to which an important maybe sort of starting question is, what does creativity mean to you? How do you define it? Do you know Edward de Bono? I do indeed. Okay, so you're not going to get any better than Edward de Bono. When people use the word creativity, they're normally talking about style. They confuse, so they think creativity is what you find in art galleries or wacky movies. So like, you know, award-winning foreign movies. I mean, that's style. That's you know, very nice style, but there is some creativity in art galleries, but 90% of it isn't. It's just the same old thinking. And there's a lot of talent, of course, in art galleries and in movies. But for me, fresh, the unusual, coming at a problem the way nobody else would have thought of coming at that problem. And that could be business. It could be art. It could be design. For me, obviously, it's going to be more about design or communication. But it could be military. It could be sport. Certainly, I'll see it in football, but I'm, I'm assuming you'll find it in other sports as well. Creativity, it's not to do with a particular area of discipline. It's what you do in that area that nobody's ever seen, nobody's ever thought of, and immediately everybody sees it. They all say, oh, why didn't we think of that? It's so obvious, everybody else goes straight over it. Yeah, after the event. But let me just pick you up on the art comment, because you had said, I think it was in Creative Blindness, that you know real creativity doesn't live in specialist museums for dead art. You know What's dead art versus live art? Are you referring to the status of the artist? What do you mean by that? 
Well, yeah, for me, dead art is where you have to know something about it in order to go and look at it. So you'll take ordinary people and they'll go and look at Jackson Pollock or Mark Rothko. They won't know what they're looking at. What is it? It's a load of splashes on the wall. So dead art, because it has no application to ordinary people and ordinary people's lives. Consequently, you'll get a page of waffle next to it explaining in very long, credible, difficult words what you're supposed to be thinking. So you're very impressed already that, ooh, well, this must be clever stuff. The kind of, when I was about 18, I was in my first year at art school. I was actually doing a foundation at East Ham Tech. And I'd been up all one night doing a painting and I had it on the wall. And I just finished it and I was cleaning the brushes. And dad came in from work and mum got up to make his breakfast. And I had it there and I said to them, "Uh, what do you think of it? And they both looked at it and they didn't know what to say. And eventually mum said, well, you know us, David, we don't know anything about art. And then they carried on with their day. And I thought, well, run this by me then. I'm about to spend four years studying something that unless you've also studied it, you won't know what I'm doing. I don't get it. It's not like I could understand that if I was going to be a rocket scientist or a surgeon or something. Fair enough. But art, why do I need to be doing something that nobody on the planet, unless you've studied it, knows what I'm doing? That's what I mean by dead art. Well, I think there is definitely an issue of accessibility in art and in some museums, and I think we should work harder to make them more accessible. That's maybe a slightly different issue around. Well, no, no, I disagree with that because I don't think it's our job to understand them. I think it's their job to understand us. And if you want to be do dead art, good luck to you. It's not what I want to do. I talked to Mike Greenies once, my partner in QGT, I think it was. Mike had been to Warwick where he'd done pure math. And I said, well, I can't do, I could never do that because I can't do numbers. And Mike said, well, pure math isn't about numbers. That's applied math. Pure math is about logic and discovery and finding things which people who do applied math then find are useful and then make it practical. And I thought, okay, I get it. That's how it is with creativity then. So art gallery at its best is pure art. You don't know what you're going to do with it. It's just there. And someone like an applied artist will come along and find if there's any use for that. If we can do anything with that, that has some application to the real world and normal people. So in that sense, maybe we can separate the museum environment or indeed where people observe it. You're not necessarily saying that, you know, Michelangelo, Leonardo, Picasso and Dali were not creative human beings. Well, wait a minute. Off you're talking about different things. Picasso was fantastically creative. I'm not saying artists aren't creative. I said 10% of it is creative. Picasso is one of my heroes, yeah. But there are lots of people in there who, I went to art school, I can tell hype. We all learned a lot of waffle, how to take an orange peel and write a page about it so it sounds like a work of art. We'd do that with the ashtray. It was used to be a joke in the canteen. We'd sit in there and talk about the ashtray as the plasticity and its metaphorical effect and its surrealist effect and what the ash represents and the tray represents. We'd just do that for a bit of fun. We know we can do that because we've been to art school. We can see when it's being done and we can see that art galleries are full of that stuff. But people that don't know will let themselves get bamboozled just by a lot of long words they don't understand. And that is a bet noir of mine. I hate it when people think they're going to pull one over my eyes by using a lot of long words instead of if you mean it and if it's real and if you've actually got something to say, say it in monosyllables. Say it in words that everybody can understand. Otherwise, you're just covering it up and trying to pretend it's something that it isn't by disguising it with long words. And that's most of what's in art galleries. So picking up on something that you say frequently, which is about the types of people then who work in advertising, you sort of tended towards saying that advertising is sort of filled with people who are rather sort of too clever and overconfident for their own good. Why is advertising in European filled with all these people who have a preference for long words and complicated terminology rather than saying it as it is for the ordinary let person? Me just, let me just pick it up. I don't, I don't think it's people that are too clever. I think it's people that would like to appear to be too clever. Actually, they're pretty stupid. It's like putting perfume on a bad smell rather than actually washing the smell away. This is people who can't explain an idea in simple language because it's a crappy idea. So what you do is you take the idea and you put an awful lot of long language over it. So you're no longer a dustman. You're a refuse collection specialist, recycling generator, or whatever long words you want to, you know, I studied in New York for four years. Of course, that's what you do. People like that. If you can't give someone a pay rise, you give them a job title rise. That's all you learn at university is don't actually think about anything in creative terms. Learn how to write a paper that will get you a good grade. And how you write a paper that will get you a good grade is to use a lot of long words. So when they come out, they think that's what they've got to do. So when we get a brief, the first thing we have to do with a brief is put it back into English. And that's when you discover it's actually a pretty crappy brief and the thinking is pretty poor, but it's disguised so the client will be impressed 
with a lot of polysyllables, like a posh accent, just like Boris Johnson, incredibly stupid people who, because they've learned ancient Greek and ancient Latin, think they're intelligent or a dressed-up version of a stupid person. Being able to see through that is the 10% of the world that's actually intelligent, the 90% that's impressed by thinking there's something going on. You'll use long language to pretend there's something going on that ordinary people can't understand. Let's break it down into language ordinary people can understand, and then we'll actually see if there's anything going on here, shall we? And 90% of the time there isn't. Is there something about your industry that attracts this character type, or do you think it's a generic issue across our society? Yeah, definitely it's a generic issue across society. And what happens in our industry, it starts around about A-levels, when people have to go decide what they're going to do with the rest of their lives. And obviously, they're not going to go to art school. It's not even on the agenda because they don't think they have a talent. And they think you need to be talented to go to art school. The misnomer is what screws it up. If they were called creative schools, you'd get a lot more... good people going there. Because they're called art schools, you think, and because most parents don't take art seriously, my daughter, when I was at her school, uh, the teacher said to her, what are you taking at A-levels? And she said, oh, art and design technology. And he said, ah, the loser subjects. Because at A-level, they will start to think, well, what you aspire to, unless you're going to be a scientist or a mathematician or, or something, going to do a vocation. Otherwise, what you aspire to are the liberal arts. You aspire to study English or a PPE, and you aspire to go to Oxford or Cambridge. So you throw everything at those two things, and you end up with, when you get out, now you start thinking, what can I do? So with the talent you've learned or whatever you've learned at uni, how to write essays to get you through the subject, and you go into advertising. Now, you can't go in as a creative because you haven't learned any creativity. You haven't learned any ability to art direct or to think or to write. So all you can be is you can be an account man or a planner. An account man or a planner, you start writing briefs the way you used to write them at university. We had a young guy who was doing work placement at our agency, waiting for his A-level results before he went to uni. So about 19. And I said to him, what are you going to study at uni? And he said, geography. And I said, ah, you want to be a cartographer? And he said, no. I said, well, what are you studying geography for? He said, I can't stand geography. I said, why are you studying geography? He said, well, I'm going to get my best A-level result in geography, so that will help me get into a better university. So you're not thinking about what you want to do with your life. You're still thinking about the end of your academic career rather than the beginning of the rest of your life. And you don't think of the beginning of the rest of your life until you get out of uni with your liberal arts degree. Then you think, what should I do with it? Hey, look, those, those guys are having tons of fun in advertising. I want to do that. Now, what can I do in advertising? Well, too bad, mate. You can't do the fun bits because you didn't go to art school. And in the old days, before all this university crap, before the, I think it was it Tony Blair that turned every polytechnic into a university just so he could get people off the unemployment register. So in the old days, if you couldn't get any uni, people didn't go to uni. So they went to get jobs in the mailroom at the ad agencies. Didn't know it was an ad agency. You got jobs in the mailroom. And in the mailroom, they learned to hustle. And they learned to think they learned to hustle other people. And they worked their way up to account handling. And they hustled there. And they worked their way into being a group head. And they worked their way into being a chief exec or an MD. And they went having their own agency. And you get people like Frank Lowe or Charlie Saatchi or Peter Mead, none of whom went to university, all of whom started in the mailroom, as all of whom came out fantastically creative, account men, because they learned to hustle. And for an account man, I know we don't want to use those words because we all want to be, think we are scientists now in lab coats, which is part of what screwed the whole thing up. You're trying to elevate advertising to a level at which university graduates can be proud of it, rather than adjusting yourself to the level at which you can do this job well. So we pretend we've got a scientific, this is part of what behavioral economics does, takes ordinary common sense and turns it into something that's acceptable to university graduates. Any behavioral, you know, I love Rory. Rory is always one of my favorites. I can always learn from Rory and I'm always entertained by Rory. And behavioral economics, as presented by Rory, is really creative. Most people don't accept it that way. They think it's another set of rules to be learned. I agree with you there. And one of the things that I try very hard to do in these conversations, and in fact, the essence of it is about trying to explain why it is that we do the things that we do. And it's about telling really human stories. And I think what Rory does well, amongst others, is to impose real life application to it, to try and help us understand why we do the things that we do, why we make the decisions that we do. I agree that talking about BS or behavioral economics as a list of biases or as a rundown of academic papers in a very theoretical way is dull. And that's what most planners want to bring into advertising is BS in the dull academic, aren't I clever version. So 
we ignore the fact whoever we're talking to, bus drivers, secretaries, shop assistants, forget all that. This is me being super clever with my paper that I could write and I'd be proud to take back to uni to show my lecturer. It's not a lot of use to me, that stuff, because I'm talking to real people in the real world and that's where our market really is. Rather than shoehorning in some useless academic who actually can't do anything but worry about his own ego. And I mean, the story you tell of the geography student who said he wanted to study the subject because his, his grades were best in that direction, you know, that's a very sad transactional way to think about learning and education, clearly. And one would hope that that's not overly pervasive. But I think more broadly, you're right also that our education system is stuck in the past. It's straightjacketed. It is definitively biased towards certain subjects. So if you're of a scientific, mathematical, or even humanities, then so be it. If your talent is in art, music, or drama, it's considered second rate. You know, the late Ken Robinson talked talks brilliantly about that and that's a sad state of affairs it's still very unresolved ken robinson was fantastic that's why it's the most viewed ted talk of all time indeed because everybody who's ever been a child which is everybody or everybody who's ever had children which is half the population totally recognizes what a waste which you don't recognize until it's too late the whole point about art school i'm totally untalented i couldn't draw and my son can't draw now my wife and my daughter both can all of us went to art school but what I learned, my art school, I was really lucky. My art school was in New York. And what you learn in New York is to be totally rebellious. It's a bit like the Marines. We know they're getting fit to be a Marine when they go beyond listening to their instructors, when they're too tough for their instructors to handle. And that's kind of like art school was where I was. I was lucky in New York. And it was the 60s, so it was a really rebellious time. But as I say, I went from the kind of dull oil painting, palette knife art I was doing in England to when I went to New York, it was pop art. And even what you put in museums then with Andy Warhol, it was taking ordinary human stuff and putting it in museums so ordinary people at least were in a museum. Now, you had to do that to break open the whole mafia of art critics. You would end up only being able to make a living at that if you could keep 50 or 60 famous art critics happy. That became your whole life. Not 50 million people on the street. And when I was in New York, I looked at this, and Bill Birnbach was our hero. Most people in the previous generation wouldn't have touched advertising with a barge pot because it was very similar to what it's become now. Like Vance Packard's book on the mind benders, people who thought they could control the masses, and the masses was just a big blob there to be controlled and to make money out of. Then you had Bill Birnbach and the counterculture, which was actually this can be entertainment, this can be fun, this can be stuff that people enjoy. Sure, we can sell. And if people enjoy it and love it and it works for them, they'll love us being part of their lives and it'll sell better. And we'll get so much free media from them repeating what we're doing. And would be a contribution to what's going on in the world instead of just another piece of pollution. And that's why my generation of art school people went towards advertising. It was the natural expression out of the counterculture. It does sound as the industry has come full circle a bit from perhaps the time of late 70s, 80s, where one might accuse it of being rather sort of very sort of conventional, stuffy. And then, you know, you talk about that all changing. And now, again, we seem to be in an environment where there's a predominance of conservative thinking. Maybe I've got my date slightly wrong. Yeah, well, well, yeah, to be a circularity. Of course, because, sorry, but, you know, they say, if you don't remember the past, you're condemned to repeat it. Well, you're too young to remember the 50s. So you, how are you going to ever remember that? But if you go back and look at the advertising of the 50s, what kills me is people in advertising never, ever look at the past. Whatever other industry you're in, whatever other art you're in, sport or anything, you look, you learn from the past. You learn from the greats in that industry. And People in advertising don't. If it's more than five years old, it's dead. So consequently, you do nothing but keep making the same mistakes. Every cycle, a new load of people come around who think they've now learned something new about mind-bending techniques. When I came into it, it was the late 60s, but I already remember from when I was young what advertising was like before I came into it. It was the 50s, and it was dull and boring and hitting you over the head with a sledgehammer, constantly the same old repetition, of just like it is now. I watch TV now, and I must see the same ad. It's got to be 20 times a night, and there'll be five ads that I'll see each ad. To, what do you think? You think the more you hit me around the head with that, I'm eventually going to give in and buy it out of just surrendering. Is that the level we've reached? Well, trust me, I've done media plans in years gone by, and you realize after the event that all you've really done is sat in front of a spreadsheet putting crosses in boxes, and you're not really close to the action. <laughs> what well, actually is. We talk about media. There used to be, going back 20 years or more, great creative media plans and great creative media buyers. Mike Yershon, Mike Gold. 
does anybody ever study those? Does anybody in media ever study those guys? They would do things that would take your breath away. Do you know why we have live football on TV now? That's Mike Yershon. He's a media buyer. And football was dead in the mid-80s. It was dead. Nobody would go along to these dead, old, rusty, boring grounds with two blokes and one of them's got a dog. And they called Mike in and said, what can we do? And Mike said, well, there's only one thing you do do. You have to put live football on TV. And because there's only two channels then, ITV and BBC, I create a bidding war between them. One gets a Friday night game, one gets a Saturday game. And they threw Mike out of the uh, FA. They said, if we put it on TV, no one will ever go to football games and that'll kill it dead. No one will go to the grounds at all. Anyway, three o'clock on Saturday is sacrosanct for every game in the land to kick off. So they threw Mike out. Now, Mike got in his cab, but there were no mobile phones then. By the time Mike got back to the agency, his phone was ringing and the board of the FA was saying, come back, we've thrown the chairman out of it and we think what you said made a lot of sense. Come back and talk to us how to do it. And Mike did and he explained to them that you're looking at it wrongly. It isn't that TV will be a vampire for the game. TV will be an advert for the game. You'll have a 90-minute advert on a Friday night, a 90-minute advert on a Saturday. Suddenly, all of the, you'll be advertising the game. At time, you'll not only be selling it, but you'll be getting advertising you couldn't buy. You'll be making it so popular, especially with the advent of colour TV now and well, now look at what the difference between what football was before Mike got them to put it on TV when it had to be three o'clock on a Saturday afternoon and the only thing you were allowed to see was highlights on Match of the Day. Now they're paying over a billion pound a year. It's a pitching war between Sky and BT now to get the rights because Mike's got a vision beyond the spreadsheet. And you'll find Mike was the one also who invented 48-sheet posters because all then we had was 16-sheet posters and Mike had to sell the Ford Capri. And he said, well, that shape's wrong. I'm going to buy three 16s and put them together. And eventually he set up a unit to go around the country buying 16 sheets of made for, and that became Portland. And Mike Gold was exactly the same thing. These guys think creatively. Now, after you see this, you say, well, of course. But at the time, it just wasn't a possibility. Well, it's always easy after the event, isn't it? But I want to just carry on talking a little about sort of these irreverent sort of alternative approaches. I think it's clear that a lot of the greatest ideas and discoveries come also through serendipity and error, you know, whether that's penicillin or the, or the meerkats campaign. But I imagine that most business executives find it really hard to write randomness into their plans. And if that's the case, how do we get around that? How do we allow more freedom, a little more risk-taking, a little more chance in to the way we think about planning advertising. So what works for me? Don't forget, I don't plan advertising, I'm a creative. Create, okay, creating advertising, I use the wrong word. I'm a businessman and I'm not in marketing, I'm in advertising and I'm a creative. The stupid people think advertising is a subset of marketing. Just so you know the numbers, and I know you probably read this, £20 billion is spent in the UK every year on advertising. Of that, 4% is remembered positively, 7% is remembered negatively, 89% isn't noticed or remembered. So that's so £1 billion quid wasted every year by people who think advertising is a subset of marketing. So by the way, if those statistics are publicly available, why on earth are people continuing to piss money up the wall? Well, why does the government piss money up the wall? Why does the military piss money? Why does anybody? 90% of the planet is stupid. I only want to work in the 10% that isn't. That's how I've tried to spend my life, making sure I'm only in the 10%. The first realisation is that 90% is stupid. 10%, don't forget, is still 900 million people. If there's 9 billion people on the planet, 10% is 900 million people. I couldn't meet a tiny fraction of that in my lifetime. Why would I spend a second with the other 90%? Just let me do it. Let me spend the money. Give me my wages and let me go home. That's all they want. That's their life. Okay, good. Good luck to you. I don't want to be part of that. And you don't have to be part of mine. Mine is I want what I do to be great and exciting and to count. And that's why I went to art school. And if you don't want to do that, good luck to you. But let's don't confuse the two things. Let's don't you work with me. Did you used to pitch to your clients like that? I didn't usually pitch to clients. No, I'm, not very, to you. I'm not very client friendly. No, 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 it's not that. 90% of the clients are stupid, of course. The, and they don't want to listen to this. So what you do is you have an account man. You have a Frank Lowe or a Mike Greenies or a Peter Mead. You have a really, really good account man, Tim Bell, who will, like Charlie Sarchi had Tim Bell. You have a guy to, you know, you have Rolls and Royce. Rice was the brilliant engineer. Rolls was a salesman. So I'm the brilliant engineer, but that's not very client-friendly. You need a salesman who is client-friendly. Clients need to be talked to and cosseted and understood and feel the relationship. You're not going to do all that with me. What I'm going to do is give you the right answer and argue for it, and that's not what clients like. 
Let's go back to my question, then, and I'm going to put it in a slightly different way. Whether one's in, then in advertising in an advertising context or not, what are then some of the rules of thumb to producing consistently creative thinking? Then how, well, do, you, well, how do you go about it? I'll go back to your previous question about the serendipity. We'll come back to the other one, but I think it's important because the best bloke we've ever had in advertising was a guy called John Webster. And he said to me, he said, your problem is the idea is as good as it's ever going to get at script stage. You never leave room for mistakes. He said, you can get really happy mistakes come along the way that will show you something you never even thought of. And John was great at that. So what I'm thinking is what you say, how do you build in mistakes? So I've got to look at what I'm really good at. I'm a really good creative director. I'm not necessarily a great creative. It's a bit like Ferguson. He's a great manager. He's not a great footballer. So what we've got to do is looking at what I am and how I work best. So what I then need is a lot of good youngsters, like Ferguson had five great youngsters given to him. I need some good youngsters working under me. And I'll put that together. I'll make sure they're going the right way, doing the right things in the right place. And their natural exuberance will take them through to make things happen that I hadn't seen. Bob Paisley, when he was manager at Liverpool, someone asked him what kind of youngster are you looking for to train at Liverpool? And he said, the youngster we want is the guy who will try to nutmeg Kevin Keegan on the training pitch but stand aside for him in the corridor. And that's exactly what you want. Another thing about making it happen, putting a department together, was when Kenny Dalgleish was manager at Liverpool. He was player manager. Kenny Dalgleish, great player, but coming towards the end of his career. But still great. And they asked him how it was working out. He was learning to be manager. And how was he finding it? And Kenny Dalgleish said, I know I've got it right when I can't get on the team. Now, as a manager, that's what you do. If I have to, I'm, I'm really good. But if I have to do it, then I'm not working as a manager. I'm back to being a copywriter or a creative. And if I want to be a manager, I should be putting together a team that actually does it better than I could have done it. So is your job in that sense is about synthesizing the energy and the good ideas of the young guns around you? Well, for me, it's youngsters. I like rebels and rejects. So for me, I like the people that nobody else wants. I don't like having really good people who think they've got the answers and who think they already know it. That doesn't really work for me. It's like bringing in Ronaldo hasn't actually transformed Manchester United. You've got everybody else now sitting around waiting for Ronaldo to do it. No, mate. Let's get five youngsters like Ferguson did. You get five youngsters who've never played outside the youth team and put them on the park and they'll be playing out their skin just for the chance and the love of being there. And you look for people like that, much more important to me than the talent is the attitude. You can learn talent, you can't learn attitude. I think it goes back to what we were talking about, you know, education before. And something that you said is that in inverted commas, you don't learn that at Eton, which sort of says to me that you have a belief that whether it's elite public schools or whether it's school in general or university, to some degree, sort of full of sort of stifling bores or having the life sucked out of them. And that these sort of environments are just crushing creative spirits, sucking the life out of kids and giving them wings. I don't necessarily say that because I don't know that all kids are creative. What works for me is the people that nobody else wants because then by the time they get to me, they're desperate. And I'm a lifeline. I'm your last chance to actually now. What that means is forget going to the pub, forget looking for a girlfriend, forget going to the football match. I'm your lifeline. You've got one priority here, which is work. And to get yourself to do great work that will get you famous in a hurry. If you want to make that your priority, I'm here for you. If not... Well, there's a load of other agencies you can go to. So tell me how you do that then. So you've got your gang of rebels and rejects. How do you then translate that into winning work? Well, that's my job, isn't it? It's like saying to Ferguson, how do you translate it into a winning team? What I used to do was give everybody every job, which is not what everybody liked. If I've got enough young people, see, because they don't cost as much, I can afford a lot of them. So instead of having one heavyweight at an enormous sum, I can afford four youngsters for that price. So I can give them all the job. And we can, they're all competing with each other and we can see which one does the best work. We, I've got now four chances of picking the best one. And if none of them can do it, then I'll do it. And eventually what you find, what I've always found, everybody who's worked for me has either ended up being a creative director and starting their own agency because they say it's very difficult after they've worked for me to go out and work for people who are not as good as them and people who don't think as hard as them. It's a bit like after you played for Brian Clough, it's very hard to go and play for someone who doesn't think that hard and who isn't at that level. So what you do is you find people who are desperate. So when I give them a brief, it's like a present. They've been waiting so long without work and they're so desperate to get on. I say, I've got a brief here. It's like you're giving them a present. This is another chance for them to do something that will be great and they'll love it and they can get out. You Now people give you money, put money behind your ideas, and it runs on poster sites or in newspapers or online or on TV. This is a privilege. This isn't like working in a bank. This is fun paid for.
So back to the question of serendipity and error, maybe then it's a cultural thing, which is that you're setting the context, the environment, you're creating a sort of, there's a bit of edge, there's a bit of fear, but within that, there is a license to make mistakes. There's a license to try things, to do things differently. Now, the different is the key word. The first thing you recognise is I'm not a spokesperson for advertising. And like any more than Ferguson saw himself as a spokesperson for football. Or I'm one agency, I'm one person in one agency, and we do things one way. If you want to work here... That's okay, but that's our way. What we're not doing is if you can't quite work here, we're going to find every way to make it possible for you, give you bean bags, give you yogurt each morning. Nope, you want to work here, you make it work, or there's someone else out there who's unemployed who does want to work here. This is like um, personal responsibility. The way I used to put it is like, figure me as a boxing trainer. You come to me and say you want to be world champion. Okay, I can tell you how to be world champion. First thing you've got to do is come and knock on my door at 5am every morning for road work. If you're doing that, knocking on my door at 5am for road work, this will work. If I've got to go and knock on your door at 5am, this ain't going to work and we might as well forget it. So you've got to be more hungry for this. It's not about me making you work. This is about you making me give you the chance. It's an old Chinese proverb that says the teacher can only open the door, the student must walk through it. Okay, I can open the door, I'll walk through it for you. This is down to you. And if you don't want to do it my way, you don't have to. There's 90% of the world that does it the other way. 10% of people don't want to do it the other way. They want to do it my way. Okay. It's a bit like, you know, in media, targeting. You may not be talking to everybody. I'm not trying to sell tampons to lorry drivers. I'm looking at who wants a tampon and I'll sell it to them. So I want to talk about turning problems on their head because when it comes to finding creative, less obvious solutions, when you're problem solving, you talk about the concept of reversing the problem or addressing it from the other's point of view. You recommend getting upstream of the problem and changing it into an opportunity. Can you explain what that means in real terms? Okay, in behavioral economics, you call it choice architecture. I set up the choice so that the choice you choose to make will be the one I wanted you to make. I get upstream so that the problem never happens. The simple one that we used to use that everybody knows is two guys walking through the jungle and they hear a tiger roar and one gets down and starts putting on running shoes and the other one says, you're crazy if you think you can outrun a tiger. And the other one says, I don't have to outrun a tiger, I just have to outrun you. You've got upstream with a problem. I don't have to fight with a tiger. Tiger can only eat one person, it doesn't have to be me. I mean, there's a million examples of this. People misquote Sarches as, it's not enough for me to win, you have to lose. That's not the quote. The actual quote is, sometimes in order for me to win, all I have to do is make you lose. And a great example of that, I think it was the speed skating at the Olympics. And I think it was the Australian guy that qualified. He was slower than any of the other guys. All came from ice cold places, Canadian, Korean, Japanese, Russian. And the Australian, his trainer, I think she was South Korean. And she said, okay, just hang back. She said, what's going to happen? These guys know they're the best and they're going to fight it out. All we need is for you to get a medal. Never happened in Australia. All you do is you got to get a medal here. So just hang back. And if you can get bronze, that'd be great. And what he did is he hung back and the others were fighting so hard to get gold with their egos. They smashed into each other. All five of them fell over and he skated past them and got the gold. That's kind of like, let's get upstream and think about this. Everybody's thinking one solution. There's another story about someone coming past them, all these children falling into the river, and they're trying to get the children out of the river so they don't drown, and someone else runs up the river and finds out why they're falling in. You stop the problem before it gets to be a problem. I mean, I'd go on forever with these stories. That is creativity. Let me take you in a parallel, slightly different direction, thinking about solving thorny problems, because one of the other real challenges of advertising is changing people's purchasing habits. That's notoriously tough. So I wonder how you think about designing communication to change and sustain new behaviors. How do you think about that? Getting upstream always means going back to basics. At the moment, no advertising is about changing people's purchasing habits. All advertising is supposedly about making people love the brand. Nobody thinks beyond that. I love the brand Guardian, but I never read it. It's boring paper. You haven't changed my purchasing habits. I used to love silk cut advertising, but I don't smoke them. I used to love different beer advertising, but I don't drink the beer. None of this is about changing purchasing habits. It's all about make me love the brand because the stupidity of planning is that's all there is to it. Make me love the brand and I'll buy your product. Nope, make me love the brand, I love the brand. It doesn't translate. So if you actually want to change my purchasing habits, then that's a whole different brief. Now we need to get upstream of loving the brand and finding out what will change my purchasing habits. Like CI used to be a great example of this. Government used to spend a lot of money advertising for different things they wanted to happen. They don't do it now. So they would have things like drunk driving. 
So drunk driving, every year they used to do the same old advertising showing car crashes and someone who's been made fatherless by a drunk driver and some children who's been killed by a drunk driver. How terrible it is to do drunk driving. And yeah, like I didn't know that, like that's a surprise. So, okay, you've sold me the brand don't drink drive. What you haven't done is changed my behavior. Because by the time I've had a few drinks, I don't think I'm drunk. Nobody gets in a car thinking they're drunk. Everybody thinks they can drive. So let's look at that problem. Now that's already got upstream. How do we solve the problem of someone who is drunk and thinks they can drive? And they realize you don't talk to the person who's drunk because they're beyond help. You talk to the person standing next to them. And they did a campaign, friends don't let friends drive drunk. Take their keys, call them a taxi, give them a bed for the night. Drive them home yourself if you want to, but friends don't let friends drive drunk. That's getting upstream and changing purchasing habits. Companies do that too. It's clearest in government advertising because people often don't get that making me feel good or bad about something isn't the same as changing my purchasing habits or changing my behavior. It makes me ask the question, you know, how do we really work out what's important to our audience? You know, so we get what we desire from them. You know, rather, what we tend to do, as you say, is that we sort of career towards what we think is important, but we're not actually getting under the problem. You have to look around. There is, I don't see much of it about nowadays, to give you an example of it. Obviously, all the examples I'm going to give you are older. And because nobody ever looks at the past in advertising, nobody knows those older examples. It's the bad influence of advertising awards. All agencies want to do is win advertising awards. As it said, once a metric becomes a target, it ceases to have any use as a metric. That's what advertising awards are. It used to be something had performed so well, you'd give it an award. So what you naturally do is you aim for the award. You don't aim for the metric anymore. Who cares whether it was? The ad agency's done its job and the copywriter and art director have done their job if they win an award because they'll go out and get more money. So that's their audience now is award juries, not the punters anymore. So that's why awards are pernicious, rather than the clever creative thinking, which isn't just, oh, I like that ad. That's not clever creative thinking. That's just a bit more style. That's art gallery thinking. The same old mafia of awards juries is the same as the mafia of art critics. Got nothing to do with the punters, the 50 million people on the street. Watch that guy, John Webster. He won more awards than anybody, and he never even entered them. The agency used to enter them, and John never collected them, and the trucks used to drive up and drop them because that meant nothing to John. What meant something to John was whether the people on the bus whistled his song or school kids wrote in for his character and wanted it. Not just sales going up. That's okay. That's one metric. But was it part of the contribution to the general life of the nation and to people enjoying it? Because when you do that anyway, that's free media. All viral means is free media, media you haven't paid for. So I can take a 5 million spend and generate it in the 25, 30 million. Bed. I mean, what would have been the, one of those would have been meerkats. When meerkats started, what, 20 years ago? The biggest in the insurance industry in the what do you call it? Price comparison. Yeah. Go compare and might have been confused.com, might have been money supermarket. Those two were the biggest and this little teeny one compared to market came in. And what they did is instead of looking at from the academic view, uh, how do we get in here? We get in by trying to be like the rest. They got in by like, no, we have to be exactly the opposite of the word rest. How are we going to make this catch on in the media? How are we going to make our name compare the market, both of which are the same old words as everybody else? How about let's have fun with this the way we compare to meerkat? I don't even have to remember our name. If you remember compared to Meerkat, that will catch on. And then we get free media. And now, guess who's far and away the biggest in that area? By the way, that campaign, and there's nothing wrong with this. I think there was some real serendipity and chance about how that was created. It was the sort of the last chance idea. But I mean, that's absolutely fine because if no. you, set, you give yourself the conditions for that and then allow that to happen. You know, when you say the great thing about the last chance idea, the clients I always work best with are clients in trouble. Because if you're not in trouble, you don't really want to do it anything unusual, changeable, creative. You just want to kick the can a little further down the road, maintain the status quo. George Washington used to talk about the clarity of desperation. And those are the people I work with. So clients aren't now saying, I like that or I don't like that. Clients are now saying, will this work? I think there is a truth that some mix of crisis and constraint allows real creativity to flourish. I want to talk about effectiveness and metrics and awards, but I want to talk about our obsession with digital advertising and data because digital advertising, I think at least in its desperation to prove efficiency has become massively over-obsessed with targeting numbers of eyeballs, frequency metric, campaign planners or algorithms can't account for it seems to me is that actually most digital advertising doesn't work like Netflix or Amazon where I might buy something and I'm happy to be recommended something very similar immediately after. In other words, if 
I search for and then buy a TV, a sofa or a pair of trainers, surely that moment is past. I probably don't want to see more associated <laughs> ads, right? I'm pinching Rory Sutherland's example there, but he talked about, you know, I've just bought a bloody fridge. The last thing I want now is to be peppered with fridge adverts, but that's exactly how the algorithm bloody, bloody works. So the question is, maybe you see where I'm going here. Why is online advertising still so bloody clunky in its targeting and outcomes despite its promise? It seems that we're sort of muddling efficiency with actual effectiveness, right? Well, from my end of it, what in media terms, what we used to get that was really useful to me, one of the worst things that happened for me was taking the media department out of ad agencies because a lot of the creativity used to happen between the creative department and the media department. And one of the things I would always want to know from the media department was what's the OTS? We don't even know that nowadays. Opportunities if, to see, yes? Just yeah. To... If you did the OTS, how many times is our market going to see this ad? So if it was up to seven times, I'd do one ad. If it was 20 times, I'd do two ads. If it was 30 times, 40 times, I'd do three ads. We'd have a campaign of three ads. Nowadays, I sit down at TV and I go, you've got one ad and I must have an OTS of a couple of hundred. And it's stupid because nobody has ever discussed the OTS. Before you go in, how many times are we going to run this ad? And consequently, that's another thing. We just need an ad. So from the media terms, we've got to fill this space. And I've built you fantastic efficiency here. And nobody says we're going to get thousands of spaces. But that's the truth of it. Oh, you've got fantastic efficiency. Do us an ad. So the two things are divorced. And you don't know. You think you're doing an ad like it's going to be seen 10, 20 times. And it's actually going to be seen again and again and again and again until you bore the arse off everybody with it. And I'm sure that wasn't the original idea. Please, can you bore the arse off everybody with this? wasn't written on the brief. Probably not. But I mean, I think it reflects somehow that we just live in this business world. It's not only advertising, but where more data, call it big data, it's sort of considered the panacea for most customer behavior ills. You know, the more data points we have, the more we think we know, the more we think we can talk personally to our customers or develop or cross-sell products. I think that's how the theory goes. But I don't know how you think data is sort of helping or hindering advertising in particular. It has some good aspects to it, but I think it distracts us from the essence. I mean, data's great. The problem is how you use it. Like anything, it's, you know, like a gun. It's, the gun's not responsible for murder. It's the bloke who picks it up and shoots someone. The data's just like that. Data's the dashboard on a car. Data doesn't understand psychology, of course. It gives right? me information. What I do with that information is up to me. But people don't. People go straight from data. They treat it like a knee-jerk reaction. Unthinkingly, just use it. And it's the unthinking that's the problem. Thinking is difficult, so people don't want to do it. So they use data as a crutch, so they don't have to think. So until we get past that, until it take five, ten years, whatever it takes, for someone to get creative, for everybody to get so sick of it, what's happening now is just like the 50s. You think bashing someone over the head with it repeatedly again and again and again and again. It's not until you wake up and realise this is being counterproductive. People are hating your advertising there because all they're seeing is every time they open their door, you're shouting at them. Every time they turn on their computer, every time they turn on their TV, you're just shouting the same old thing at them and again and again, interrupting what they want to do in order that you can shout the same thing at them again and again, as if they that's eventually going to work. And that was how it was in the 50s. Until we wake up a little bit, and it, like I say, it'll take another five years maybe, and everybody will realise gets sick to death of it. Someone begins, and there's a general sea change where everybody begins to realise everybody's getting sick of it, and one or two people act on it and make a lot of money by acting on it and doing the alternative to it. Then everybody will wise up a bit and the pendulum will swing the other way. Yeah, I think as far as digital advertising is concerned, we have become obsessed, over-obsessed with sort of pixels and precise measurement to the detriment of real communication. And there is definitely some confirmation bias there. I think, you know, we struggle to evaluate the results in an objective manner and kind of hark back to a past of our own creation and confirm whatever new results we happen to be looking for. But the measurements are stupid. Do you know online what counts as an exposure, what you pay for, one exposure, Facebook's measurement is seeing one pixel for one second. Now, you yeah. pay for that as, if, as much as if they'd watched the entire ad for its duration. One pixel for one second, then you pay for that. You don't pay a reduced rate. You One pixel for one second counts as an exposure. Is there any kind of way that anyone with any brains would to – and yet we do. The whole industry carries on doing that. Are you familiar with Ian McGilchrist, psychiatrist, philosopher, writer? 
Have you come across Ian by any chance? No. He's written a couple of fascinating books. He wrote a book called The Master and His Emissary. And then last year, he just published his sort of magnum opus called The Matter with Things, which I highly recommend. And it's a book, it's very difficult to sort of summarize briefly, but it's a book which tries to get to the heart of our existence and its meaning. And you'll get where I'm going with this in a minute. But he sets the arguments up by describing the contributions of and the interactions between our two brain hemispheres. So in simple terms, he positions, you know, the left is very mechanistic. It's black and white in understanding it's dogmatic with a very narrow beam focus. And in the evolutionary language, you'd say its purpose is to for grasping and manipulating things. And then you have the right brain, which is understands context. It understands nuance, subtlety, and color. And what McGilchrist is sort of countering in the matter with things then particularly is that our world today is just dominated by too much of this sort of blunt, abstracted left brain thinking and that there are very few voices left which are reasonable and not consumed by a rage and hatred or there are too many voices which take things out of context and which have an understanding in only a very reductionist abstracted way and for a successful survival of humankind we need to understand our complexity we need a different kind of reasoning that's a reasoning going back to where we were that cannot emerge just from a computer but nevertheless we're in this age where everything is increasingly handed over to computerized systems where which encourage us then to think in very black and white, either or abstract, decontextualized ways. It's this obsession with machine intelligence. Mm. And I sort of wondered whether that line of thinking may well kind of resonate with you when you think back to what we just talked about in terms of digital and data and advertising. Well, you know, the years, years and years back when I was in New York, the IBM was before Apple, uh, Microsoft, IBM owned computers totally. And IBM had a really bad reputation. On 2001, the computer, you know, it's called HAL 2000 because the letters H-A-L are the letters before I-B-N. That's why it's called HAL. I didn't know that. Yeah, because nobody knew Apple was coming or Microsoft. Everybody thought IBM would own the world. The way they now think the metaverse will own the world, they thought IBM would own the world. And Carl Alley had to advertise this horrifying vision of the future, this IBM that everybody was scared of. And they had this great line, I thought, this strap line for the whole thing was machines should work, people should think. And... For me, that hasn't changed. That's still the way it needs to be. Ever since the Industrial Revolution, isn't that the way it's been? Machines should work, people should think. Just look at history. Isn't that the way we're going? Who was I was reading about? You can get a machine to beat you at chess, which you think means it could do anything, but you can't teach a machine to learn what a baby can learn in the first three months of its life. So the simple things a machine can't do because that's all feeling, that's all right brain, that's all judgment and emotion and, and knowledge and intuitive. You can teach it the left brain, a machine can do that, and it will always beat you. Jack Ma was writing about it. It's why Jack Ma thought the future for training humanity had to be much more towards the right brain. If you keep training people in left brain, you'll always be displaced by a machine. Because left brain yeah. will teach a machine to do it. Creativity lives in the right brain. Obviously, creativity can't live in the left brain because that's where we haven't been yet. I want you to do this thing that never been done before. What is that? That could be, you know, a banana on the moon. What, what are you talking about? I mean, that's progressive artificial intelligence takes into account, which is that, you know, machines don't understand context, don't understand psychology. So as you say, it's the hybrid approach. There's no doubt that machines can accelerate us, can take off manual tasks and automate a huge amount, but that's not to no, 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 be no. at the detriment of human intervention. But, but if you, um, do you know the yin-yang symbol? Yes, I do. So my wife's Chinese and Taoist, and the yin-yang symbol features very well. Um, when you read anything about Taoism, you'll find that the yin-yang symbol always was what you're talking We call it left brain, right brain. They call it yin and yang. And how you symbolize that, this is going back, I don't know, 4,000 years, something like that. How they symbolize it is, I think the yang is the male and logical and rational and the closed hand about, I think it's heat and power. And the yin is the female and the openness and warmth and feeling and togetherness. Because one's about logic and one's about feeling. So how that always worked in our area, it seemed to me, is copywriters were more about Yang and art directors are more about yin because you can logic your way through copywriting. You can't logic your way through art direction. And you need both to succeed in the end. That's why it's a single symbol because you need both. Yeah. Music doesn't live in logic. Music and art and culture and all those things live in feeling. Then there was this Indian uh, woman I was reading about, mathematician. She said this really fascinating thing about how to get the most out of your brain. She was saying that we're all dominant on one side. I mean, we've all got both, but we're all dominant on one side. And she said, the, what you do is if you're dominant on, for argument's sake, left brain, you'll learn more stuff about that. But each time it's an incremental growth. So one more little connection. And meanwhile, this whole other half of your brain hasn't been used. Now, if you force yourself 
to learn things in the side of your brain that you're not, then all of your connections then grow geometrically instead of segmentally. The massive opportunity for growth is to look at the area of the brain where you're not naturally comfortable. So I don't know. I mean, I tend to be more logical, so I have to get stuck a little bit more in the foot. But my wife, she's an art director. She's much more the feeling side of it. So when we'll go around art galleries, for instance, she'll have to explain a lot of stuff to me that I just don't get. Now, once I've understood it, then I'd like it with Picasso. I thought it was a lot of rubbish until I understood it, and now I'm his biggest fan. But that's my kind of brain. I need to understand it first. Well, let's look to the future and ask a penultimate question, which is what now needs to change for advertising people to connect properly? properly with ordinary people, bearing in mind all that we've just discussed. Well, I don't think advertising can do anything on its own. I think it's part of society. And if society doesn't change, then you're just going to carry on the way you are. At the moment, the answer to everything is money. An agency must be good because it won more accounts and made more money. I don't know. In my day, you'd look at their work and say, yeah, it's rubbish. I don't want to work there. So you might make a lot of money because maybe you attract a lot of stupid clients who don't care how you bash people over the head and you sell a lot of stuff in a way that's insulting. And maybe you've got distribution and maybe you've got pricing and maybe you've got a lot of things which makes your product sell despite the fact that you've got insulting boring advertising people don't want to think beyond i'll make a great ad and the product will sell no mate there's a little bit more to it than that like pricing like distribution like availability like hundreds of things that i don't even know and now look at the whole process if we're looking at actually where can i take this 20 million quid and be effective where in the entire process can i spend that best and it might not be doing a bunch of online ads it might not be awareness. It might not be changing the brand. I mean, I'll give you loads of examples of where we've spent money where it's had, had more effect and it hasn't been about running an ad. That kind of broader, creative Edward de Bono type thinking to get people stuck out of the answers, traditional TV advertising. No, the answers, brand new online data advertising. Hey, man, maybe the answer isn't either of those things. Maybe let's start off with a question and then we'll find out where we go. Maybe the answer is one of those things, but it's a bit like Brexit or no Brexit or vaccine or no no vaccine or Trump or Biden. It's like, you know, there is a third issue. There's the Venn diagram. There's this side and this side, and everybody thinks you've got to be one of those. Well, no, there's a bit where they cross over, where the actual opportunity is in where you can be converted to either. You're not locked off. You're not a core user or a core non-user. You haven't made your mind up yet. Brexit or Remain, yeah, could be, I don't know, could go, I mean, at least 20% of the country could have gone either way. Trump or Biden, you can see it if they switch every election over here. You can see Boris or Labour. But people, not just in advertising, people in general, it certainly is in advertising, are so stupid that they think it's all got to be one or the other and they can't think beyond that. The middle ground has fallen out of so much of our intelligent debate. I mean, we're a far more polarised society now, whether we're talking about Brexit or Trump, they become extremely binary, aggressive arguments. It's impossible to have a dialectic. The exploration used to be what was interesting, the thesis, antithesis, synthesis. So I come out learning more than I went in. But now it's not that. It's now either I'm going to win or you're going to win. But even if you win, I'm still going to win because I'll deny that you won. I totally agree. I'm going to ask you a final question before we go to the quick fire. What are you optimistic about? Well, that it will change because if you study anything, if you study music, if you study art, everything is a reaction. We don't face forward, we face backwards and we always react to the last thing. Lao Tzu said, when the pendulum reaches an extreme, the trend will be reversed. So feels to me like we're pretty much reaching an extreme now. So the generation after this will arrive and see this is pretty disgusting and want to do the opposite. So we'll get back to we'll get back to a creative generation. It won't be us. It won't be this generation because this generation is still reacting against whatever it's reacting against. I don't know. Shall we do some quick fire? If you like. Okay. What is the kindest thing anyone's ever done for you? Good question. I guess when I was a junior, I came back from New York, got a job at BMP, and I've worked there for 10 years. They should have fired me many, many times, and they didn't. They indulged me, and they decided that the work and my enthusiasm was worth more than the fact that what a massive pain in the arse I was. What were your fireable offences? Oh, drink and drugs and just, I mean, things I'd fire someone for nowadays, definitely. But nowadays, you wouldn't think of it like that. Nowadays, the process is more important than the result. In those days, the result was more important than the process. So because I was doing advertising, which they loved, and how I got there, they put up with that because the end justifies the means. Nowadays, it isn't. The means justifies the end. As long as you've got people that turn up on time, 
crank it out on the conveyor belt and accept whatever conditions you give them, then we're not looking for anything great anyway. So the end, which is not very good, justifies the means. It was easy and okay to get there. I actually used to sort of wonder whether the ad slash media industry just enjoyed boozing and partying so much, partly maybe that was it was a cultural thing or whether actually, perhaps inadvertently, it was just a means to sort of loosen up the prefrontal cortex and get people thinking a bit more creatively and fluidly. A drink often helps that. The two weren't really connected. What you did is you've got a lot of people. The work carried on over the pub and the pub carried on back at work. If I needed an idea, I'd been weeks and I couldn't come up with an idea and you're totally, totally desperate. I'd get on the tube train and sit in there and look at the people I'm supposed to be talking to and I'd ride the circle line round and round again, trying to think, how do I convert these people? I'd go to the supermarket and I'd watch the people at the supermarket. What? Coming up against my brother, I had one, but I'd go, I'd, I'd think, no, I need to go and see a movie. I need to go and see a movie to think about this. I'd go to the bookshops that used to be down Charing Cross Road and look in every bookshop. I'd go to the pub and get smashed out of my brains to see if that got me out of the rut. You just do whatever it took to get you out of the rut. And it wasn't like it's nowadays, it's much more given the whole thing is so boring, you know, in all levels, your product is boring, so your process is boring. Then the product was was so paramount, how you got there was secondary. Nowadays, how you get there is really, really important because the process isn't, if your product isn't that important. So then consequently, how you get there becomes more important. Let's do the next question. What's your favorite ad campaigns of all time, whether the ones that you've created or ones that you witnessed? All you had in New York was 50s advertising of cars, and nobody wanted to even look at anything unless it had a mile of chrome on it and huge long car, massive great seven liter engines. Everything was about that. And then you had this stupid little foreign thing, Volkswagen, that people used to take the mickey out of and call it a pregnant roller skate and say it should have a key on the back. And what Burnback did is he realized we shouldn't be selling to the same people that buy in those big American cars. But what you do is you look to see who isn't buying that. We don't try and copy what someone else is doing. We look to where's the opportunity here? Where's the opening? We don't fish where everybody else is fishing. There's less fish somewhere else, but we'll have them all to ourselves. So where is that? And what Burnback spotted was the counterculture. And the counterculture was every kid over 17 has got a driving license. And they don't want to be seen driving the same car as their parents. They don't want to be seen driving these big fat cat things with chrome. They think their parents are stupid. So Volkswagen did this ad amidst everybody else couldn't get enough words into their ads about all the things they had. Volkswagen did a totally empty ad that just said, how does the guy who drives the snowplow get to the snowplow? And he drives up in a Volkswagen because, you know, no other car could go out in that snow. Their radiators would crack. Their tyres wouldn't grip. Now, you know, at the same time, Volkswagen would be running ads telling you about why their tyres grip because the weight of the engines over the car, why their radiator won't crack because it's air-cooled, it's got no radiator because it's all basic. And suddenly, it's like this is the opposite. If you're stupid, with not said but totally understood and implied by who your market is, is if you're stupid and fat cat and like your parents, you buy one of those cars. If you actually want to reject that whole thing, you buy one of these. Now, that's when, for certainly my generation, good advertising started. I mean, people get David Ogilvy confused in this. Is now you do it. David Ogilvy. David Ogilvy doesn't come anywhere near any of this. David Ogilvy was much more on the other side. You'll get a Hathaway shirt, you'll have an eye patch and you'll be like James Bond. That's stupid, all of that stuff. David Ogilvy's greatest creation is David Ogilvy. I was going to ask you because David Ogilvy is so often quoted and is positioned as, you know, the sort of standard bearer of modern advertising. But do you think he's either become sort of more apocryphal or he's overrated or just misunderstood? Yeah, David Ogilvy and my generation at art school in New York, I keep saying New York because it wasn't happening in England at that time. England was still in the 50s when I was in New York in the 60s. And the counterculture was happening there much, much bigger than it was in England. Ogilvy wasn't the counterculture. Ogilvy was still madmen, guys in suits, drinking whiskey in the office. And everybody quotes, you ask them about David Ogilvy. The only David Ogilvy ad anybody can quote is in the Rolls Royce at 60 miles an hour, the loudest noise is the ticking of the clock. The only ad they can quote. Now, the guy, clever guy, built a career out of that one ad. Now, the rest of it is all, like I say, Hathaway shirts. He did a campaign of a guy with an eye patch. And what made that campaign take off was the guy's got an eye patch. What's that got to do with anybody? It's just more, let's sell you a fantasy world. Whereas what Bill Burnback did, that whole side of advertising did, was they'd use fat people, they'd use black people, they'd use Chinese people, they'd use long-haired people, they'd use women much more than Burnback did. And everybody didn't have to be pretty and thin and blonde and white like they did in everybody else's ads. Burnback was totally the counterculture and totally real people. And that's why everybody loved Burnback and all the advertising that came out of Burnback. 
So when Birnbeck got given Avis, they were one of about a dozen small car companies, and Hertz was number one. Hertz was the giant by a mile. And Avis was one like Dollar Car, Alamo, American Rental, United, all the little car companies. So what Avis did was said, well, well let's take a truth, and we'll make a truth to sell what we've got to sell. And so they did, why go with us? We're only number two. And the answer was, we try harder. Making a virtue out of a weakness. That's what Birnbeck invented, making a virtue out of a weakness. Everybody else would never admit a weakness before Birnbeck. Well spotted. Everybody else would never admit it. Birnbeck was the first to take a weakness and turn it into a positive. So the fact that we're not number one means we're not the fat cat. means we can't rest on our laurels. means we can't just sit back and take you for granted. We've got to try harder to give you better cars, to give you nicer staff, to give you maps of where you're going, to give you everything you want. We'll try harder because we can't take you for granted like Hertz do. And they gave out badges saying we try harder. And everybody wanted those badges saying we try harder. And now, how much free media is that? Right across, talk about going viral before there ever was any internet or anything. Right across America, these day glow badges saying we try harder. Everybody's wearing them and loving them. And so much so that it was the time of the Vietnam War. GIs had to ask Avis, could you make those badges with camouflage instead of day glow? Because the GIs are wearing them on their helmets and it's making them too easy to target. So we try harder on our helmets, but can you make the badges out of camouflage? Now, how great a campaign is that, where people are asking you, can you please make your campaign line so we can wear it? That's a lovely example of going viral probably before the term was viral itself. That's what Birnbeck invented with Volkswagen. You know, Detroit wouldn't even wipe its shoe in Volkswagen, and now Volkswagen could buy Detroit 30 times over just by taking what nobody wanted and turning it into a positive, looking for the bright way to do it. And you've got to look at the market who wants it and the same with avis now you don't just take the the product and do that there's a little more thought to that who are we talking to here we can't be talking to the same people if you only want the biggest you won't go with us same with the detroit if you want the long car with loads of chrome you won't buy volkswagen we're not talking to you and if anybody would ever bother studying the history the first thing i did at gg well not the first thing but at ggt one year Agencies take a table at awards schemes like DNAD and pay for everybody to go along. And I thought, better than that, the money we would spend on the awards table, we won't spend it there. We'll get the New York Art Directors Annuals. We'll find out where we can buy a complete set of the New York Art Directors Annuals, and we'll spend the money on that. And my creative department will have a complete set from, I think it was 1930 to date, of every New York Art Director's Annual to go back and look at to see what no one else in London knows about. And we have a jump with every other agency in London then because nobody else, no, they do not study history. They certainly know nothing about New York. And that's why we were such a great agency. We're looking where no one else is looking. All everybody else wants to do at the moment is look where everybody else is looking. How stupid is that? And that's the mood nowadays is everybody's doing it. It must be right. If that's the sort of frightened attitude you've got, you have no chance of being creative. That's why I would always like rebels and rejects because whether you've been rejected or whether you're naturally a rebel, either way, you are where nobody else is. So those are the sort of people I wanted in the creative department, people that were nowhere nobody else was. I don't want people that are highly paid and won loads of awards because all that means is you had an endorsement from the conventional system, the way everybody else is. That just means my creative department is going to be competing with everybody else's creative department to be the same as everybody else. How stupid is that? So we're going to be doing ads the same as everybody else's, and yet you're going to look at our ads? Out of 4% remembered positively, 7% remembered negatively, 89% not noticed or remembered, that's why. Because 89% are just trying to do it all the same. Even the 7% that are remembered negatively, at least they can work. Take Go Compare. Remembered negatively, but at least it's remembered. What's the advertising for Confused.com or Money Supermarket? Do you know their advertising? No idea. No idea at all. That's the 89% that's not noticed or remembered. You've got the 4%, which is compared to meerkats, which is I don't even have to say the actual name of the product, and you know what I'm talking about. Compared to meerkats, that's the 4% that's remembered positively. In the 7% that's remembered negatively is Go Compare. But then in the 89% that's not noticed or remembered is Money Supermarket and... Confused. Yeah. But, but your point about Go Compare is very apt. Any publicity is good, which is that the ads even became self-referential, recognizing that they became so hated through their frequency. Oh, and, the, oh. and the opera singer then sort of took off his garb and it sort of opened the kimono to the initial idea. Yeah, I don't say any publicity is good publicity. Again, that's lazy thinking. What I say is if you look at that product, it's an aggregator. 
just think of what they're selling. When I get insurance every year, insurance is a distressed purchase. I don't want to buy it, but I have to buy it. I'm not looking forward to shopping around with it. So what's the easiest way to go in and get it? Let's go to an aggregator. Okay, which name's top of mind? Oh, that bloody go compare. Okay, I'll look for them. And that's all that has to work. It only has to be top of mind. You don't have to like it. Now, knowing that, it will work. It might be in some other cases I have to like the advertising, but I don't always have to like the advertising for it to work. Every time we have to ask the question, what's the job here? My art college, the man, it was a Bauhaus art school, and the mantra was form follows function. Now, you take that with you through your whole life, follows function. What this is going to end up looking like is according to the job we've sorted out that it's got to do. So first off, we put most of our effort into sorting out what is the job. Einstein said, if the world's going to end and I've got an hour to solve it, I'll spend 50 minutes on the problem and 10 minutes on the solution. Because if I get the problem right, the solution will be easy. If I don't get the problem right, there will be no solution. So form follows function. Most of our effort needs to be working out what's the function here. And the function for Go Compare is just getting your brain. That will work. I don't like it, but... That's not the function of it. Yeah, I was talking to the guy who did does that, Peter Wood, the owner, and I said, aren't you embarrassed about, you know, everybody hates the advertising? He said, yeah, now ask me what it's done for my business. You know, the function he knows, his function, he didn't care, it irritates you. His function is not for you to like his brand and go and buy someone else's product. Brand isn't is irrelevant for him. That's you want to talk about changing behavior, have a look at how the behavior works. Go back to the beginning, get upstream. Go back to basics and then you can get upstream and look at what the job is. And the job isn't to do stuff people like. We don't know what time of the year insurance is going to come due. So we've got to stay in your brain for when it does come due. So, you know, maybe that's irritated. In the case of compared to meerkats, it's do something people love and they'll keep talking about it. And you get all that free media. That's the right way to do it. Now, the second best way to do it, if you can't do it as good as that, is go compare, which is at least we're getting their brain. Now, the wrong, totally the wrong way to do it is Confuse.com and Money Supermarket, both of which were massive before Compare the Market came along. With that, Dave, let me just thank you so much for spending this time with me. And as someone myself who worked many years ago in your industry, or approximately so, it's a real treat to finally learn something meaningful from a true master of the art to be inspired, actually, also by your courage and sustained bravery to be a contrarian. And it's certainly refreshing counterpoint to let's say the pigs mugs and snake oil drunks that i spent much of my time with uh, when, I, when i was in the industry about 20 years ago but advertising and media aside i think you know the lessons that you share are really timeless and transferable and so i sincerely hope that all of you listening to this feel as provoked and stimulated as i do now so dave thank you very much thanks a lot i think dave may be the most quotable guest i've ever had on the show If there's one message I take from this, it's have the courage to take a risk and be different from the crowd. Be in the 10%, not the 90%. Guys, on the next instalment of A Load of BS, I'm keeping it in Adland in conversation with Sir Martin Sorrell, founder and CEO of WPP, and now the fast-expanding S4 Capital. We'll be talking about his big influences, big deal-making, big data, and motivation for doing it all again. I hope you enjoyed today's chat with Dave Trott. If you did, leave a review. Let me know what you think. I love to hear from all of you. Till next time.